She continued, Mom and Dad are separated emotionally. They live together, but they don't uh, spend much time together. Mom's really busy with her own things. They leave me alone a lot. And with that, she started to cry. Welcome to In Contact with the ACO. I'm Dr. Chris Burrow. This presentation features the care of patients by one of the ACO doctors who practices a different kind of psychiatry. These are real patients, but their privacy is protected. If you're interested in attending one of our live events or webinar presentations, you can meet the doctors and join in on the discussion afterwards. You can connect with us and learn more at adifferentkindofpsychiatry.com or organomy.org. Stay tuned for details about our online events and for when we will resume in person at the ACO campus near Princeton, New Jersey. The best way to help the ACO spread its knowledge is to let others know about us. Leave a favorable rating, review, and share with a friend. In this episode, we hear several cases presented by Dr. D. Apple about his work with adolescents and their parents. The cases highlight the effects and problems in parenting, as well as the benefits of parents overcoming their own problems for the sake of their children. The audio is from a live presentation from 2019, and in the absence of a quality recording of the audience discussion, we've added a one-on-one -on -one interview with Dr. Apple, where I've asked him more about his patient's therapy and his views on parenting. I hope you enjoy. The basic starting point with what I have to say is that marijuana, especially high THC, high potency THC marijuana, disrupts and sometimes arrests development, such as cognitive development and emotional development, particularly with young people, adolescents who are in the fast lane of development uh, of those functions, brain development, neurological development. So th this is a serious problem for young people. My point is today is that how parents respond to their child's interest in drugs or getting involved in using drugs is just as significant as how they <coughs> address any other emotional or medical problem that their child or adolescent might develop. <clears throat> because there's great confusion about the effects of marijuana, especially high THC marijuana, and widespread use of marijuana now in our society, the role of the parent is more important than ever. Parents really matter. So I'm going to present four cases that illustrate sort of a continuum of how parents approach these kinds of difficulties. <clears throat> Martha's mother, a professor, referred her because of Martha's anguish and depression over her boyfriend who had cheated on her. Martha was unable to finish any schoolwork. With only a month before high school graduation, Martha's mother was concerned this might jeopardize her standing at college. This is what she was worried about. In her initial interview, her mother was cool and sort of detached and intellectual. Her father seemed hardly in the room. I, I really had a hard time getting eye contact with him. He was just sort of all over. The parents didn't look at each other either. The subject of marijuana was never mentioned. 
until I brought it up. Martha struck me as anxious, but working really hard to be cool and act like she was in control and that everything was just fine. Everything was peachy. She's really a beautiful adolescent dressed in provocative fashion. This really stood out when I met her. She had tight cut-off jeans, inappropriately short, that she kept plugging down, and a skimpy t-shirt, a size too small, that she kept pulling up. (laughs) I wondered to myself, where are her parents? how, How do you let your kid go out of the house dressed like that? Martha said, my dad lets me do what I want. He really trusts me. He's really cool. And then this was the, the one that really woke me up. He smokes pot while cooking pancakes for me and my little sisters. She continued, Mom and Dad are separated emotionally. They live together, but they don't uh, spend much time together. Mom's really busy with her own things. They leave me alone a lot. And with that, she started to cry. Martha couldn't stand to be alone. She hated being alone. It was terribly painful, and it made her very anxious. So Martha smoked pot a lot to quell her anxiety. She also said, I tried to win my boyfriend back by getting stoned with his best friend and drunk, but he sort of took advantage of me sexually. I said to Martha, I'm really concerned about you. I'm really worried about your use of marijuana and alcohol and the dangerous situations you get yourself into. This one with this boy wasn't the first. However, she left for college after 11 sessions. Her parents thought really what she needs is a change of scenery. So I had recommended that she really needs more than a change of scenery. She needs ongoing therapy and encouraged them to find a therapist at the college, but they didn't do that. Later, I learned that Martha had to leave college after, I think, about a semester after continuing copious use of weed and progressing to hallucinogens, cocaine, and opioids. Not that everyone does, but some do. Despite providing for her every material need, her parents had clearly neglected her emotional needs. In this and similar cases, the parents tend to take a a sort of a distant role, a permissive attitude about marijuana and other things, abdicating their parental role and responsibilities, which renders them ineffective in helping in the interactions with a a young person who's in serious trouble or headed towards serious trouble. In a second case, Bobby was was a private school student referred after his parents noticed references to pot in his text messages. They said he'd become argumentative, less organized, and was no longer doing as well in school. His mother said she valued her close close relationship with Bobby over almost anything. His father was a high-functioning but angry man who seemed to vary between being critical of Bobby or withdrawing emotionally and not contributing to the structure and discipline in the house. And Bobby was not in any way interested in stopping smoking pot. He said, I like smoking pot. I like it's fun. Um, And it also helps me forget all my stressors. 
and everyone else is drinking or smoking, and I don't want to be the only one who's not using. You know, a whole different mindset. He was quick-witted, smart, and had multiple rationalizations for his use, such as, well, I have a friend whose father smokes pot, and he's really cool. He's successful. He drives a Porsche. Bobby's attitude about pot was also slippery. He told me, I talk a lot with mom about being honest. Some kids figure out when it's confidential, they can say these things, it's like, it surprises you. I talk with mom a lot about being honest. I told her, I'm not going to drink alcohol, mom. I know it's bad for you, and we have alcoholism in the family, too. His mom reported, I was thrilled. I told Bobby that trusting him was the most important thing in the world to me. I recommended drug testing Bobby, but mom said, well, whatever I consider testing him, he confesses, well, I think I might have smoked maybe once in the last month or so. I'll probably test positive in the spirit of honesty. I knew from Bobby that he sometimes smoked daily, and often his confessions were enough for mom to drop the idea of testing him at all. She clearly did not want to catch him and be in that kind of chasing relationship with him. His mother hoped that trusting him would be enough. The plot thickens. After several sessions, Bobby told me, I found my mom's stash, and I smoked some of it. He was delighted to tell me this. Um, Later, after I talked to his mom, she admitted with embarrassment, since I occasionally smoke pot over the years, and I'm fine, figured Bob would be fine too. Everybody's doing it. But to her credit, Mother saw the hypocrisy and the poor example she was setting for Bobby, and from that point on she stopped. And over the next month or so, as her perceptions seemed to clear up and we were talking a little more, she realized that she was in fact not fine. She was very lonely and estranged from her often absent husband. Nonetheless, Later, Bobby was caught smoking pot at a friend's house. I asked his mom, well, have you been testing him? Uh, I sort of haven't been. Have you told his father about this? Uh, No, not yet. I confronted her with how her marriage and endangering Bobby. I told her, you you have to put your foot down on this or it's not going to get better and it's likely to get worse. After she informed her husband, Bobby's parents came together and imposed recommended restrictions and testing. And over the next few months, Bobby's emotional and academic functioning sort of rebounded and improved. And later that year, he graduated from high school. Unfortunately, just before leaving for college, this is an example of poor timing, Bobby learned that his parents were divorcing. He was really upset about this when he left home. When I saw him again at Thanksgiving, it was clear he was smoking pot again. And he wasn't interested in talking about that or seeing a therapist at college. And his parents were divided and upset themselves and just couldn't enforce anything. Near the end of that academic year, I learned from his mother that he he was stopped by campus police after he drifted through a stoplight. 
charged with having marijuana in his car, suspended from the university and dropped by his girlfriend. So he had a bad May. Then according to his mother, he stopped smoking marijuana and it took that much for him to begin to see how much it was affecting him and hurting him. Bobby's parents' responses to his crisis were all too typical. They were partially cooperative with recommendations that I offered them, but compromised by their own problems and difficulties and unable to consistently implement recommendations and limit setting with Bobby. They presented a parenting style that was confusing to him with elements of a caring, authoritative, direct, clear style undermined by some permissive and indulgent attitudes and occasionally harsh authoritarian at once too. They weren't together. Bobby's continued use of marijuana during parts of his treatment prevented consistent attention to his underlying problems and emotions. More effective treatment was not possible until his abuse at great cost to him created circumstances that required him to stop. So a third case, moving a little more towards more hopeful cases. Uh, Jenny was admitted to an honors art program at a fine university. This one doesn't start off too hopeful, but it gets better. By her second semester, her grades were slipping. She hid from her parents that she was smoking cannabis more regularly than going to class. When her parents caught on, they required her to return home and commute to college for the rest of the year. They started her in therapy with a female therapist. Jenny took one summer class and did well enough, satisfying her parents, and then was allowed to return to live at school for her sophomore year. She soon returned to smoking pot again, however, and also got into trouble at school drinking. Her grades again declining, her parents again required her to return home and commute to school. After much discussion over the summer, Jenny's parents allowed her to go back for her junior year. This is one of those things you hear it and you kind of go, what? And they allowed her to rent a house um, on College Avenue at Rutgers, which is where all the partying goes on. Um, again, by October, she was smoking pot again and had all but discontinued a couple of her classes. And I was contacted in mid-October. So there's a clear pattern there, no doubt about it. And I think it was even clear to Jenny that she couldn't manage smoking pot. After meeting with her parents and then with Jenny, I told all three of them that I really had reservations about treating her on an outpatient <coughs> basis. I recommended referring her to an inpatient rehab program as the better option. But Jenny's parents were worried that she would lose her place in the honors program. She hadn't failed a course in the honors program, so she was still in it, and also lose her financial scholarship if she left the school altogether so she could continue her scholastic program and financial assistance, I basically agreed to do an experiment and take her in treatment, but only under very defined conditions. First, she had to just stop smoking pot. Now, not later, not after we talk about it. That's, she's got to stop. And she was up against the wall, so she was agreeable. 
<clears throat> she would return home from her home on College Avenue to take classes and take a full course load. The parents had to agree to conduct random drug testing, and Jenny had to agree to cooperate with that fully and honestly. She had to work on the weekends and during the summers to pay for most of her car insurance and her own college tuition, unless she achieved a 3.2 GPA, and then the parents would resume paying her tuition. She'd have to meet with me in therapy at least twice a week, and I asked her to start, create, and share with me a Google Doc document in which she would write on a daily basis her perceptions of things in therapy, about me, about marijuana, whatever, and share it with me. And I would read that journal and respond by both writing back to her and discussing themes and issues in her therapy sessions. And I made it clear if all these conditions were not met on an ongoing basis, I would stop treatment and the parents would insist on her entering a rehab program. They all agreed to that. So, happily, Jenny has not used marijuana in over a year. She's taken a full course load and working as a waitress. During late spring and summer, this past spring and summer, she was functioning the best I've ever seen her functioning, cutting, stopping marijuana still, no marijuana, cutting back on her use of alcohol, making sure she was getting enough sleep, exercising regularly, eating a healthy diet, and in a way that really is exciting, interested in her own health. So she's starting to regulate herself, and it's not her parents trying to get her to do something or me asking her to do things. She achieved a 3.2 GPA in her last semester, so her parents are paying her tuition, and she's now in her final year at college. So there's a lot of work left for her. There are other issues, but so far, so good. In a similar case, Alvaro, a 16-year-old public school student, was described by his parents as smart, empathic, and music musically talented. But more recently, his parents had observed that he was less social, at home and otherwise, losing interest in things he used to enjoy, and moody. After several confrontations by his parents, Alvaro admitted he'd been smoking pot. In therapy, he revealed to me that he'd smoked 20 to 30 times at the end of the uh, 10th grade, increasing to nearly day, daily use in the 11th grade. Alvaro's parents were divorced and mom remarried, but in a, in a way that really uh, foretold how uh, effective they were going to be. All three parents were present for our first meeting together, capable of setting aside differences they had about other issues and presenting a united front out of concern for Alvaro. They immediately accepted all rec recommendations and suggestions. Alvaro stopped smoking after his parents' interventions. After five months, his parents noted a dramatic improvement. And I, you know, I would like to say, wow, I'm such a great therapist. You know, five months, dramatic. It's smoking pot and stopping smoking pot makes a big difference. Mm -hmm. He was more alert, less argumentative, more willing to participate in activities, and less withdrawn. By six months, Alvaro and I were no longer, no longer talking about pot in therapy. 
he moved more to his own goals in therapy. He said, I want to enjoy more things again. I, things I used to do, outdoor things, going on walks, playing soccer, hanging out with friends, playing the guitar. He agreed to exercise and went out for track. His grades improved from 1A, 2Bs, and 4Cs to 4As, no, I'm sorry, 5As and 2Bs. He graduated high school and began his college studies in physics in the first year earned straight A's. Smart kid. So in summary, from my experience and sort of the, I guess, the theme of this presentation is response of parents to an adolescent's marijuana use often matters more to the outcome of the case than how much or how long the adolescence has been using marijuana. In the two most successful cases where the kids really responded well, use had been nearly daily over several months, so heavy-duty use. Due to the effects of marijuana, therapy is limited in scope and significance until the cannabis is stopped altogether. To the extent parents cannot act authoritatively, going to take charge in a firm, gentle, nuanced way and engage their adolescent. That doesn't mean being friendly necessarily, but um, engaging them in a way that works. <clears throat> the therapeutic process, as we saw with Martha, is little help, little hope that the therapy is going to help or that the patient will even engage in therapy like Martha. Her parents didn't think her drug abuse mattered, and thus their parental responses prolonged and extended the destructive effect of marijuana abuse. We often see that the parents' own problems become a deciding factor, in the, as in the case of Martha and Bobby's parents. If the parents can accurately see the problems and they're part of the problem, their contribution to the problem, then progress is likely. So even if they're not in therapy themselves, they have to be an active part of the treatment. They can't just send their kid to therapy and expect everything's going to get better, and meanwhile they're just not involved at all. Things proceed most effectively when parents are able to be clear and compassionate, firm, but gentle from the start, as were Jenny and Alvaro's parents. Although I wouldn't say Jenny's were firm from the start. Here the focus of treatment moved from the complex issues surrounding drug usage in the family system to the, un the adolescent's underlying troubles. By stopping drug use, these teens were not out of the woods, yet they were no longer hiding or lost in the woods either. They're making progress, finding their way. So treatment is never easy, but it, in these conditions, it's genuinely hopeful. And the parents really matter. So Dr. Apple, I appreciate your time and, and thank you for allowing me to interview you. Um, the big question I wanted to ask you was, can you um, help the listeners understand uh, your perspective on working with uh, children and adolescents 
and maybe how that perspective is colored by your training with the ACO and um, how might your approach be a little bit different than maybe another psychologist or psychiatrist? Okay. Um, that's a really good question because it's very specific, but it also opens up a very broad potential answer. Um, I think that since I've been in therapy and uh, in training, which goes back further than I might want to admit on tape, um, you know, since 1975, um, I, I think that everything I do, at least when I'm in contact myself, is informed by my experiences in therapy and my training uh, at the college. So whether it uh, would look like an ergonomic intervention to someone who doesn't know much about it or even to someone who does, from the outside, I think my training is so much in my bones um, that it's it affects everything I do in terms of how I see things, what I'm paying attention to, how I frame my understanding of what's happening in a room and how I uh, proceed with the patient or with the family. Um, I have this old saying I picked up somewhere along the line about when you see a patient, it's important to enter the room without will or desire. So I'm not thinking about ergonomy, uh, at least not most of the time, um, while I'm in a room with somebody. But I, when I go back and look at, well, how this unfolded and how did I get here and what might I do, I realize that's my way of looking at life and that's my way of looking at people. And that's my way of understanding how to help people in therapy. So that's a very general answer. Um, I mean, I could start with some specific things like, um, like, for instance, I went all the way through graduate school and, um, you know, internship after that. And I don't think anybody ever mentioned uh, health or a concept of health. Um, Organomy has a concept of health based on the pulsation of energy within people and within societies and um, an understanding of what happens to the natural healthy pulsation of individuals in terms of armoring and how that manifests in all kinds of different problems that people have, both biologically, um, psychically, and socially. So there are, um, I guess, natural uh, consequences of thinking that way and seeing things and appreciating things on that level that present uh, themselves as uh, ways to, to intervene with people that other people who may be well-trained in other ways have no, no idea about unless they have some basic just contact with these things themselves, but without the, the, the sense of how all these things are interconnected, I guess. I see. So 
Um, just to break it down a little bit, if I'm hearing you, when you mentioned um, feeling it in your bones when you're working with a patient and having the concepts uh, of ergonomy in the back of your mind and, and when you're then processing it, you mean uh, the patient's character or their emotional expression or what blocks it? Is that what you mean? Yes. Um, I think it, it starts with um, contact, you know, as we talk about contact being the integration of um, excitation, adequate excitation, level of excitation, and adequate clarity of perception, contact with myself, first and foremost. I have to be able to be in touch with my sensations and emotions in order to have accurate contact with other people and situations outside of me. Um, no matter how wonderful, uh, you know, complicated theoretical system I might have about therapy or couples therapy or whatever, if I'm not in contact with myself, um, it's all up in my head and uh, disconnected from what's actually happening in the room to some degree. And when you say that, do you mean, for instance, how you're feeling that day and how that can color your perceptions of your patients or um, any other feelings that come up that's brought up by what a patient may say or do? Is that is that what you mean or, or something else? Well, I think that's that's important, but I think that's a sort of, a, I guess, a less important aspect of contact because those things come and go, change with the day and the weather, et cetera. And of course it is important to be aware of, of your own feelings of the day, but there's something I think about part of training in therapy perhaps is being able to walk in, like I said, without will or desire and put your own issues, you know, what happened between you and your wife, you know, that morning or, or sort of in a healthy way dissociated and uh, you're not tuning into that anymore. You're really more in contact with where you are with that patient. Uh -huh. So I think more importantly is <clears throat> how much therapy along with good training allows you to be aware of your own issues um, and feelings and reactions to people, to be more conscious of those things uh, when you're working with people. Uh, so, for instance, that, you know, in psychoanalytic therapy, they call it counter-transference. You know, if I'm having feelings with this patient and reaction to them, so maybe I'm getting irritated by a father, if I'm aware through therapy, for instance, that, wow, this guy reminds me of my dad. That used to irritate the crap out of me when I was a kid. That's why I'm relating to him in this way right now. That's incredibly helpful in terms of being more effective uh, as a therapist. And I think the same process happens in therapy in terms of helping individuals who are parents be more effective as parents because they're not reacting to their children just as extensions of themselves or as uh, little beings that are supposed to be narcissistically gratifying or whatever, mm -hmm. react more contactfully to your kids. I see. So be, before we move on to parenting, I just I want to highlight it sounds like one of the um, specific ways um, 
that you may differentiate yourself from from another clinician is having your own therapy. And I think that's with all the doctors in the ACO, that's something that started years ago when psychoanalysis was popular, but that that is something that still differentiates the ACO from from other professionals. Yes, I I mean, it is hard work, but uh, you know, anything really worthwhile in a deep way is worth working hard for. And I I just can't even imagine how uh, psychologists, therapists, social workers, whoever, psychiatrists um, work with people without having their own therapy. Um, and to me, it seems, I don't know if it's, I think it's for all of us to some degree, it's not only having had your therapy, but continuing to have your therapy, um, which makes it so much easier to be in contact, to be clear, to walk into the room without your own issues unconsciously affecting you and your perception of the of the patient. So. It's every bit, if not more important than even the training you get. The training is so important, and not to just reduce it to techniques, because there's so much more than that, but even if it were just techniques, if you had no contact, uh, which builds from good therapy, you'd be you know, shooting all over the place without accurate aim. Yeah. Yeah, and, and, and you know what that brings up in my thoughts is just you can meet a, a great school teacher or a parent who just has that gut instinct and and is able to to keep in contact with themselves and, and allow um, great connections with their students or, or children, and they don't have any training. It's just, you know, they're both important, but there's something about that that's, you know, really um, prime. Yes. I mean, I think sometimes I say to my own patients that therapy can take place in lots of different places with lots of different people. Um, so, you know, a good grandfather can be a great therapist or parent. Um, they're different functions, but they overlap. But there's something about um, ergonomic therapy or social ergonomic therapy that's um, just deeper and um, more well integrated than anything else I've ever found. Yeah, I agree with you. And and so talking about parenting, you know, you titled your talk "Parents Matter," um, and you know, I have to say, part of me says, "Who names something Parents Matter?" Like, duh, you know, like <laughs> <laughs> the fact that you have to name it that stands out. Um, yes, maybe you could say something about that. <laughs> Very true. I mean, it's just like uh, I think Dr. Whitener had an article, or you know, in the journal at some point, um, basically saying something very much like that. You know, that it's amazing that there are all these parent journals out there. That it's okay to parent your child. It's okay to discipline your child. It's okay to be an authority. Like, why do we need to be told that? Um, but why do we need to be told that parents matter? Um, but in this day and age, with the changes in our society, um, you know, as we call it, from a more authoritarian type of culture and society to a, 
predominantly anti-authoritarian. Um, it does need to be said uh, in a painful way. It's uh, some of those cases I presented in that presentation and paper were were, were painful. You know that the parents it, not only did they not know they mattered, they didn't seem to realize they were parents. They were totally disengaged from the role and the function of being a parent and their children suffered as a consequence. Mm. And when the children suffered and started acting out in all sorts of ways, their biological parents weren't able to function as contactful parents. If there's anybody listening who maybe feels uh, unclear about their role as a parent, could you just say from your perspective what, what you feel the role of a parent is? Yes. And I mean, in the most general sense, the role of a parent is to help a child grow and develop into a healthy, self-regulating individual capable of healthy love relationships, work relationships, and the ability to learn about the world. And that, you know, changes day by day what that means as you contactfully as a parent sort of alternate between allowing your child expression of their feelings and impulses, um, listening to them, not necessarily reasoning with them, but listening and talking with them. Um, and on the other hand, restraining some of those expressions when they get out of line or are inappropriate. Because children, well, I think the healthiest children basically know a lot of that uh, or have that as a part of who they are. Um, but most of our children grow up in a society that's not so healthy as that. So they pick up all sorts of things from us, from TV, from school. So when we're in contact as parents, we're needing to restrain certain impulses that, that aren't healthy and help the child come to understand that that's not going to happen in our family kind of thing. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. So, um, you know, what that looks like from age two to age 17 can be really different, of course, but the basic principle is the same. To, the goal is to help the child develop into an independent being and leave home and go out in the world on their own and you know function successfully yeah no i think that's it's really good to have that kind of open definition because i think the the small details parents can get hyper focused on whether it's a school thing or a certain skill and they lose uh, sight of everything else and just their broad uh, role in, in helping the child uh, grow and, and flourish. That's true. And on the other hand, though, I find it's sometimes, um, while sometimes it is helpful to ask that question, is this, is what I want to do here, is my reaction to what this child is doing, really helping them develop into a healthy, independent person? Um, sometimes the answer is not so clear, it's not, and, and it's not so easy to know what to do. Mm -hmm. But usually, um, that's where therapy comes in. Usually, those kinds of difficult questions 
come back to problems with contact that might be within me or the parent that can get resolved if people work on it in therapy. Um, but, but sometimes in this society, even if I am in contact, and I know pretty clearly what needs to be done, it's not always easy because, you know, you're competing with a whole culture that might be taking your child in a different direction. Yeah. A, a common example these days is, well, how, how much time should my kid be playing video game? You know, um, and, you know, you often get answers from children. Well, my friends are doing it all day. Um, their parents don't care. Um, and it's so um, entrancing and uh, interesting. Um, they've spent millions of dollars developing these things to make sure people stay on them. As long I know, as I know. So, you know, I've often said um, when kids get into these things, it's like there's a whole alternative world, including an alternative frame of time, video time. So you get these reactions from kids when it's dinner time where, you know, a parent has spent an hour and a half preparing a beautiful, delicious meal for them. And the kids irritated and angry when you say dinner time because they have to stop video time. So that's sort the of thing. Um, but you have it, it's so important to be clear about how you want to try to tackle that issue in terms of helping the kid become independent. And it's not just one interaction, it's lots of interactions over time mm -hmm. that make and the difference. Every child is a little bit different on how you want to approach it based on their own uh, makeup. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Uh, maybe just stepping back a little bit, can you say a little bit more about how you see that change of culture from, you said, the authoritarian to anti-authoritarian? How yeah. you see maybe things from your own, whatever perspective, you know, you've developed? Well, I mean, it's it's interesting to me because um, while I think the roots of the move from more of an authoritarian to anti-authoritarian society started way before my time, um, the most recent sort of and noticeable change in our culture uh, towards anti-authoritarian functioning happened in the 60s when I was a teenager. So... In a way, I feel very lucky that I was able to see that transformation, although I didn't know what I was seeing at the moment. But looking back at it, um, I was raised in a pretty traditional authoritarian family that had its problems, but also had its health. And um, so my structure was basically formed during that time. And, you know, there were things, natural rebellious tendencies I had wanting to throw off some of that stuff, you know. If my dad's Republican, I'm going to be a Democrat, that kind of reactivity. Um, but the intensity of the reaction that happened in the culture at that point was way beyond anything um, that probably any one individual was dealing with in their family system. It was a culture-wide phenomenon that a lot of people got lost in and, and uh, damaged in. The, the start of drug use, for instance. When I when I tell teenagers this, and, and sometimes they don't believe me, 
that when I was in high school, no one drank except for a few what we call hoods. Um, I never drank a drop of alcohol until about two weeks before graduation and after track season was over. <laughs> and as I've said, I drove 25 miles with a friend of mine to buy a six pack of beer, not because I was worried about my parents finding out. I was worried about my friends finding out. Wow. And nobody smoked pot, nobody when wow. I graduated. But within just two or three years, when my brother, who was three years younger, graduated from high school, drugs were everywhere in high school. So just in three years, there was a radical change in just that one way, which was a great example of an underlying bigger change from authoritarian to anti-authoritarian um, ways of functioning. And, um, Sometimes I have said that or told that to teenagers and one guy I remember sadly said, well, what did you guys do for fun? Mm. And uh, it's so sad, you know, but now we have two or three generations of kids that have grown up and never known what it was like for it not to be that way. So that's a huge change, a huge example of a change in our culture. Yeah. You know, I, I actually am very, very fortunate because I grew up in the 80s and actually my experience isn't that unlike yours where I just was under the impression and I don't know where it came. I don't remember it being this explicit thing from my parents or from school. I know we had dare, but it was just drugs were for bad kids that the bad kids did, dr dr did drugs and there wasn't a lot of them. There was like a three in like the entire school that I remember and maybe I was naive and and just not a part of that. But that's was my experience. And yeah, the first time I drank alcohol was the first day I was in college. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it wasn't even a thing on my radar. It just there was other things to do. And that's what bad kids did. And I am so fortunate. Uh, I, I didn't even realize it at the time. Well, you're, you know, your parents apparently did a very good job walking that fine line between protecting you and allowing you to figure things out, you know, um, without being so harsh that you reacted against them and said, I'm going to do what I want, whether right. I've set my hair on fire if I want to. <laughs> you know? Yeah, I can't say I didn't do any of that, but at least with drugs and, and some of the more extreme things, I did not. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, it's a rare person that went through that period that wasn't affected by all that because we're, you know, we were social animals and we want contact with our peers and our peers, you know, in healthy development, moving away from parental influence to being more centered in the peer group is, is a healthy part of leaving home. Mm -hmm. But if the peer group is uh, now um, off on some unhealthy tangents, it's hard to it's hard for a person to stand separate from that. Yeah, how to navigate that. Especially if they haven't really figured out who they are yet. Mm -hmm. yeah. So I think there was a bit of shock to some of them, um, to some of the cases where the parents were so out of it and, and so indulgent. I mean, I think theoretically people know about that, but to actually hear um, cases where that's, the primary uh, 
description of what I'm talking about, and especially when they're professional people, prominent people, or well-to-do people, I think we still have, you know, attitudes that, oh, these things don't happen except for in certain parts of society, but that is not true. No, and it's, you know, those cases that you presented from my own experience are not too uncommon, and parents can be engineers and lawyers and doctors and business people that are prominent, and it's nothing about socioeconomic class these days or education level. It's it's everywhere. It's a, it's a really good point because it's it's sort of um, confusing in a way unless you understand some of the functions of parenting and and the difficulties, personal difficulties that people have with the functions of parenting, which have to do most often with problems with contact resulting of how they were parented, that some of these people can be authoritative or at least, you know, at least authoritative in other areas of their life, like their work life. Um, I remember, it's a little off the subject, but I remember um, when I first started working with adolescents at private schools, um, a father coming in to talk to me about uh, his daughter. He wanted to talk to me of course, before I saw her, and he was a CEO of a great big company, and I hadn't worked with many people that were CEOs, so I was really sh- being in contact and a little anxious myself. I was struck by how he entered the room and how he started things. He came in, and instead of sort of deferring to me as the doctor or the therapist, the professional, and, you're, you're <laughs> a professional person, in sitting down. He walked over to my um, uh, where I had my degrees framed and hanging on the wall and started inspecting them, turning his back on me, and then asked in a irritating, contemptuous way, is how I respond. I felt to it. Um, so, how long have you been working with uh, adolescents? And I said, "Your daughter will be my first. And he said, what? <laughs> and I said, please sit down. <laughs> but, um, yeah, that, yeah. Right. His question was clearly, do you know what you're doing? And <laughs> can you? <laughs> yes. And a lot of anxiety. But my point, I guess I got off the track a bit. But this guy was a successful um, entrepreneur and CEO of a big company. But really had a lot of trouble with his daughter in terms of how to deal with her and um, be in contact with her needs, Mm. which is a big part of her problem. Yeah. Wow. Mm. Um, So I've noticed this and I've heard other people say it. I'm curious about if you see see the child as a symptom of a family problem um, and if so, how do you address it? If the child is the presenting symptom of the family, basically. I, I have to confess that I know, I know that way of looking at things and there's certainly truth to it. And so I, I kind of think of it as almost like a pair of glasses that I put on and look at things through. Um, how is this child an expression of what's going on uh, in this family? How's this child's problems, you know, a somehow a, a result of 
uh, ineffective parenting or contact in the, in the family. So I know that's true, and, and I keep taking those glasses on and off because when I'm with the child alone, I'm focusing more on um, what's going on within that child and his or her ability to interact with me. You know, what's happening? Are they impulsive? Are they aware? Um, are they in contact to some degree or not? Um, and so I'm using different things I've figured out in the therapy for that child to help their contact improve. Um, but it always, with a, a child, becomes important at some point to realize how is that going to, how are these changes I'm seeing in my office going to be received at home or interacted yeah. with or supported or um, interfered with? You know, because assuming it's true, and we do assume this, that the child's problems to some degree, and usually to some a great degree, result from issues the parents are having, problems the parents are having with contactfully discharging their function as parents. Um, sorry. Uh, well, I guess the question is, what's the role in working with the parents in working with a child or adolescent? And maybe that's changed over time or not. I, I don't how do you, How do you see it? Well, it, 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 there's a couple of aspects of that. I mean, it definitely has changed over time, especially uh, with younger children. When I started, I primarily worked with young children, and it wasn't it wasn't unusual to see them twice a week. And there was a um, acceptance, uh, an understanding um, with from parents that this might take a while. You know, this is a a short time thing. Sometimes you work with kids for years or a couple of years. You know, sometimes longer. Not always, but. Um, you know, today, especially with younger children, people are more, I don't know what it is, but it, it, it's at least in part framed by what their insurance companies tell them is uh, adequate treatment for their child. You know, what's adequate, uh, what's the right fee to be charging for their child. Um, and if you start seeing a kid longer than a certain amount, the insurance companies will start telling the parents we're not paying for it, which undermines the authority of the therapist. So that's definitely changed um, mm -hmm. a lot. And you have to do a lot more work to maintain contact with the parents and protect the therapy of the child. Um, um, but I always feel like if you know it's a collaboration at the at the least a collaboration between me and the parents and i will often say to parents it's very important that first i meet you before i ever meet your your son or daughter mm -hmm. because i need to get to know you and you need to get to know me you need to be comfortable enough with me to allow me to see your child and i want to encourage you to let me know if there's something that you're not comfortable with um but all along the way, we need to stay in touch and communicate um, because, you know, parents see their kids, you know, 24 seven, seven days a week. I might have them for 45 minutes right. a week. Um, and if I'm not able to help parents 
sort of receive what I'm trying to do, help them understand and see their child in a different way, and also see how their own issues are getting in the way of doing what they need to do, um, then therapy is going to be less than a, optimal and not as effective. I, ideally, parents are in therapy with somebody themselves <clears throat> or have been. So at the very least, they know it takes time. Um, they know it's hard work. They know there's no magic. Um, mm. But uh, these days, there are a lot of people uh, I see the, the children, the parents have never been in therapy or not interested in being in therapy. So I basically have to make a contract with them that here's how we're going to do it. You know, um, and typically for me, that's every four or five sessions, I have a session with the parents in person. Um, and I encourage them to email me observations about their children so I can see how they're seeing the kid and how they interacted with the kid and you know problems they had with their daughter or son and how they dealt with that. I want to hear something about that before every session. Mm -hmm. um, and I also encourage them to call me if they have trouble between sessions. Um, so I, I try to build up a way of having as much contact as I can with the parent. Um, it also allows me when they email me or text me or actually, you actually ask people to start a Google Doc which is a little more confidential. Um, <clears throat> and then I can respond to their observations and questions between sessions, mm. which, you know, makes for the a, a better connection between me and them. It sounds like there's a lot of education in the process of treating a, a child or adolescent for the parents, just to constantly make sure they're aware of what's going on and what needs to be done. Um, and maybe that's something that's changed where before it was, you're the professional, this is what, how you do things. Okay, we get it. And now is, all right, this is why we're doing this and this is why it's going to take longer and, and so forth. Is that, is that accurate? I think that's true. Um, <clears throat> and, and, and that's talking about living in an area of the country where therapy's always been a little more acceptable mm -hmm. for people, uh, but even that's changed a bit. But in terms of education, you mentioned um, education i think that's really more important but not just education uh, in general but ergonomic education education based on ergonomic principles and understanding and <clears throat> you know sometimes i'm amazed um, i don't know why i guess that's some naivete on my part but you know, I'll, I'll just say something to a parent <clears throat> about their functioning with a child or um, their functioning in, in, in my office, uh, using an ergonomic um, phenomenon or function like um, expansion or contraction. Mm -hmm. Like if I just point out, you know, you know that feeling where you just feel, you know, tight and tense and you can't think clearly and you're irritable and you feel contracted and people, who are in decent contact will know exactly what I'm talking about. They may not have used that word and they know what it feels like when they're expansive and they can see the difference between how those states affect their ability to think clearly or parent effectively. Mm -hmm. So just as one example, um, there are a lot of 
without getting too intellectual about it, there are a lot of ergonomic um, principles that you can tie into education that I think are really effective. Uh -huh. And what I've seen is even just maybe a little bit more superficial, just helping parents understand emotions and one's emotional life. And for instance, it's not uncommon for me uh, to meet with parents who get upset with a, a child who has a strong emotional response. And that can be a rage, that could be sadness, as if there's something to do, you know, something to do about it. And, and that's where I find myself educating parents the most. And it's a challenge, but it's, it has to be done. So true. And with little kids, sometimes the most effective thing I've ever found to do is if the child's, you know, acting up in my office, to just sort of slide down on the floor in the presence of the parents and play with the kid while they're doing that and say, go ahead and hit me with the the foam bats. It's okay. And the parents are like, are you sure that's okay? Yeah, it's wonderful. You know, and uh, sometimes parents end up down on the floor too, and it just opens up a whole new thing for them. Um, but, you know, parents are just buffeted with all these, you know, articles and every magazine and newspaper uh, on the internet about you know what they should do and what kids should do and this sort of sense that everybody's watching their kids and trying to mold them into something instead of just letting them evolve and grow spontaneously and, and you know with proper restraints when necessary yeah so it's fostering their nature and allowing that to develop and not putting something on them that's what it sounds like you're saying yes Yes. You know, I, I, I was thinking um, with uh, working with parents, I, I just want to make it absolutely clear. We're not criticizing parents. We're not um, because it, it could. Um, right. We could make these observations about the difficulties parents have, and, and we may have our own feelings about it. But, but there's true that they need a lot of education about emotions and some of these principles, and they've had their own difficulties that have uh, masked the way they um, need to do things. So I just want to put that out there and, and maybe have your own thoughts about that. Um, I think that's really important. I mean, I, I think, um, I'm not sure who said it, maybe it was Dr. Chris said uh, that ergonomic moralism is the most destructive kind of moralism because it runs so deep. Um, and I think, yeah, we, we, we know a lot, but um, that doesn't change the fact that um, parents and our patients are people who have difficulties and, uh, you know, are struggling and looking for help with those difficulties. And um, I think the best training I ever had in that regard is having my own children. I mean, there's nothing like having your own children to show you <laughs> <laughs> you see me smiling, yeah. <laughs> where where your problems are lying, you know, and, and things that are getting in your way. Um, yeah. And it just makes you more empathic and understanding of other people who have similar difficulties. You know, I, I agree 100% with you, you know, because I did fellowship in child psychiatry after I did my adult training. And so I was a child psychiatrist for a period of time before having my own children. And it's almost entirely theoretical and you can have ideas and feelings about things but until you have your own children you really don't get it i think to a degree 
And that has helped me tremendously. Um, the difficulties, the joys, all of it. It's like a whole different type of therapy. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. So um, I really appreciate your time. Is there anything you want to uh, end with or any other observations or, or thoughts that you'd like to share? Well, um, just one, I guess, that, you know, I was thinking back and looking over that uh, presentation about Parents Matter. Um, maybe the title should have had an exclamation point after Parents Matter. Parents Matter. But, it, it, you know, the case um, where the parents were so out of touch um, I mean, before I could even engage them, and I don't think I could engage them. In fact, I remember um, meeting the father and realizing after um, our interaction that he never looked me in the eye once, not even for a second. He might look across my eyes as he was moving his eyes around, but he never looked into my eyes. I never made contact with him. Um, and the mother and father were... Um, separated emotionally not on the same page sort of living their lives independently they weren't engaged as parents as co-parents at all and how in that case this girl who was from a well-to-do family a beautiful girl had everything any kid could ever need materially just was so lost and alone and um pseudo mature Mm. And she was in tremendous trouble with drugs and problems with herself. And uh, the parents had no idea. Um, the thing that motivated them to bring her to therapy was that she had stopped doing her work academically, and they were worried about that messing up her college acceptance. That was all that really mattered. And when you know she just left left therapy and went to college i didn't have time to really do much to help her and but there my recommendation to the parents that she will need therapy in college was just turned down flat she just needs a change of scenery is what they thought mm. and i later found out she dropped out the other family though on the other sort of end of the continuum um was a, a, a divorced family where the mother had remarried and uh, the father had not remarried but had a girlfriend and their son had gotten into drugs and they were um, the, the biological father and his girlfriend were both more down to earth uh, sort of what we used to call working class people Mm -hmm. salt-of-the-earth people. The uh, the mother and her new husband were both really decent people, professionals, but, but very decent. And the four of them just came together. They, they didn't get along. They didn't necessarily like each other. They didn't ever socialize, of course. But they, when I asked them to, they just immediately came together and put all other things aside in order to form um, a really effective parenting coalition, so to speak. And they just laid it out in terms of what's going to happen, what's not going to happen with this boy, what they're going to tolerate and what they won't tolerate. 
And it was clear that he had gotten lost during the divorce period. You know, they had mm. really lost contact with him in some ways and gotten into these, uh, gotten into drugs um, as a part of that. And um, it wasn't like they're getting together and putting out this um, united front took care of everything, but it took care of the drug problem and it allowed the therapy to move on to these underlying issues mm. as opposed to muddling around in this haze of drug stuff and really not being sure you're getting anywhere, which can happen so easily. So that's just a great example, I guess, of how parents matter or get in the way. I mean, if you look at the first parent, first parents, that was just child neglect. Um, the only difference was their daughter was 18, you know, and so, uh, but if that kid had been 12, they could have been reported, you know. Um, yes. So anyway, that's, that's a final thought, I guess. Well, thank you. You know, I'm thinking when you said about uh, th those four adults coming together to support the child, I, I think someone had mentioned, you know, uh, a chorus, you know, people with all their various problems and, and all their intricacies, and they can kind of put those things aside and, and come together and make beautiful music. And it almost sounds that way with these adults coming together to support the child. Um, that's that's really nice. Yeah, it was. It was moving, and and to see, you know, you know people, their love for this kid was more important and more powerful than any other competing emotions. You know. Yeah, that's a good spot to end. I like that. Thank you very much for your time. Does discussing parenting bring up any thoughts or feelings for you? What do you see in society now as things have changed since your childhood? Anything for the better? Anything worse? We're interested in your questions and comments. You can connect with us and learn more at ergonomy.org or a different kind of psychiatry.com. The best way to help the ACO spread its knowledge is to let others know about us. Leave a favorable rating, review, and share with a friend. Find more episodes at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get podcasts. Be sure to check out our next episode, which will come in July and mark our first anniversary of podcasting. I'm Dr. Chris Burrett. Thank you for listening to In Contact with the ACO. Since 1968, the psychiatrists affiliated with the American College of Orgonomy have been helping patients discover greater satisfaction, health, and overall well-being in their lives. Whether patients suffer with mental illness, struggle with addiction, or feel unsatisfied with their work lives or relationships, medical organ therapy as practiced by the physicians at the ACO, offers a way forward, often without the use of medication. Mm -hmm.